Hi, and welcome to Device Week, a podcast from MedTech Insight. I'm Managing Editor Elizabeth Orr, and with me today are Executive Editor Sean Schmidt and Senior Reporter for Dosal Farouk, who many of you know as Danny. Today, we'll be drilling into a recent FDA panel meeting for hearing some expert analysis on the agency's long-delayed quality system regulations rewrite. Danny, you recently reported on an FDA panel that discussed Keystone Heart's TriGuard 3 device. The device is meant to help reduce stroke in patients undergoing transaortic valve replacement. Talk to us about how that went. Thanks, Elizabeth. Yes, the FDA Circulatory System Devices Advisory Panel met a little over a week ago to evaluate the data on the TriGuard, and in short, it didn't go very well for Keystone Heart. The panel essentially said that not only was there insufficient data to prove the device worked as it was intended, but even worse, the little data there was seemed to show the device only made matters worse. Interesting. What happened? You'd think that by the time the device goes to the FDA, the company would have as solid of a case to support the device as possible. You would, but I think a number of things happened that stalled the company's ability to conduct as robust clinical trials as was needed, and ultimately, they just had to go with what they had. They had to run a number of different tests with different versions of the same device. On top of that, their trials had to be halted because there were safety concerns as well as concerns about the trials not being properly populated. The company also ended up pulling external data from Roland patients that weren't really part of the trials. Overall, the data that they did present was a bit of a hodgepodge, which created a lot of confusion for the experts on the panel. And you said there were serious safety concerns. Tell us a little about that. Yes, let me step back a little. Over the years, one of the biggest problems with TAVR is that debris such as fat particles and blood clots that get dislodged during the procedure end up passing into the patient's brain and causing strokes. Now, the TriGuard 3 is meant to catch that debris and divert it away from the brain during the TAVR procedure. Theoretically, it sounds like a good idea, so the device was entered into a clinical trial under a pre-market approval application, but soon after the trial started, Boston Scientific came out with their own device called a Sentinel that eventually got approved. Once that happened, the TriGuard 3 clinical trial was changed so that it could be submitted under a 510K. At this point, the FDA and Keystone Heart agreed on setting a more lax safety threshold, and based on that, the data that was gathered, the company did actually meet the threshold. The problem, however, according to the panel experts, seemed to be that the threshold was not set based on sound science, and on top of that, patients who did not use the device seemed to have lower risk for stroke, 30-day mortality, and new problems like kidney damage seemed to pop up. Some of the panelists who evaluated the TriGuard 3 were also on the panel that recommended approval of the Sentinel, and it seems like they almost regret that decision. They argued that even with the Sentinel, the device did not show efficacy and it was eventually allowed on the market because it did not have an increased safety concern unlike the TriGuard 3. Furthermore, they said that based on more long-term evidence, it doesn't seem like the Sentinel is really effective, and the whole theory behind catching embolic particles may need to be reevaluated. So they got into some bigger issues than just the device itself. That sounds like a very complicated meeting. Yes, it was interesting following the discussion. The data, even to a layperson such as myself, seemed very confusing, but it was confusing the panel experts as well. Some of the panelists talked about this emotional desire to find a solution to prevent strokes in TAVR patients, but at the end of the day, if the data doesn't support the device, then what's the point? 
I should note that interestingly enough, I think the FDA and the company realized this was going to be the outcome. So they didn't ask the panelists to vote on whether to recommend approval of the device, but rather asked if they thought the data supported efficacy and safety of the product. But based on the response, it's pretty clear that the panel does not support allowing the product on the market. I'm sure Keystone Health is holding its breath while it waits for the FDA to announce its decision, since there's not much else they can do for now. Anyhow, thanks for that report. Now let's switch gears a bit and talk to Sean, who rounded up a handful of top industry experts to answer some questions about the FDA's upcoming draft harmonized quality system regulation. So what did those experts have to say? Sure. Thanks, Elizabeth. For this man-on-the-street-style MedTech Insight feature, I spoke with five longtime quality and regulatory professionals who answered a set of six questions about the draft QSR, which should be coming from the FDA before the end of the year. As most in industry know, the agency has been harmonizing its QSR, which is the bedrock rule for manufacturing safe and effective medical devices in the U.S., They've been harmonizing it with International Quality Systems Standard, ISO 13485. The project has now stretched to more than three years, and industry is waiting with bated breath to see what the draft looks like. In the meantime, the experts I talked to offered some insight, including Ken Troutman, who was lead author of the current quality system regulation back in the 1990s. And what do Kim have to say? Is there anything specific that she'd like to see in the draft rule? Yeah, she pointed out that there are sections of the QSR that are already well harmonized with 1345, but the one area that Kim wants to see separated out better is corrective action and preventive action and a better framework for measuring, analyzing, and escalating issues. Currently, corrective action and preventive action are lumped together in the QSR as one unit and is known, of course, as CAPA. And Kim told me that intertwining corrective action and preventive action back in the 1990s for the current quality system regulation wasn't necessarily the best idea, but it did make sense at the time. But Kim says 13485 has a framework that allows for improvement by ensuring that corrective actions are separated out from preventive ones, which should make decisions around addressing issues easier for manufacturers under a harmonized QSR. Okay, and does she have any concerns about the forthcoming draft rule? Kim said she's, quote, always concerned whenever regulation or standard is opened up for review and revision. While a revision does give regulators the opportunity to increase harmonization, there's always a chance that unintended divergence could be thrown into the mix. And this is where the feedback of industry and other stakeholders in reviewing the draft rule will be so vital, so any divergence can be addressed before a final rule is issued down the road. And she pointed out that if there is divergence in a final rule, that's where the rule's preamble will come into play, which will be the agency's elaboration on the new regulation. Yeah, the current QSR preamble is important for understanding the regulation as a whole, for sure. So I can only imagine that the preamble for the new QSR will be absolutely essential for industry. Who else did you talk to? As I mentioned earlier, I spoke with five experts, and I don't want to give away all of the great insight they provided here on this podcast. So if listeners want to check out the full report, head over to medtechinsight.com. 
But I'll throw in another here. For this piece, I also talked to Vincent Cafiso, who's Senior Director of Regulatory Compliance and Global Audit at Smith & Nephew. He had a few interesting things to say about how much time industry will probably need to comply with the final rule. He said that if firms proactively conduct thorough gap assessments and establish quality plans, then there shouldn't be a long process to comply. But Vincent warned that waiting until the rule is published will put manufacturers behind the eight ball. He said it should take no more than a year for a company to go from gap assessment to full compliance, and that includes revising procedures, conducting training of workers, and performing a full independent cycle of internal audits against the new final rule. But of course, that depends on the resources of the manufacturer as well as its size. So, I suppose the bottom line is don't wait until the last moment to give the revised QSR your full attention. That's absolutely a great takeaway. But yeah, this is a very long feature article, and there simply isn't enough time now to go into depth on all of it. So I agree that listeners should go to medtechinsight.com and check out your story. Thanks, Sean. Listeners, you can check out all of our USFDA and other regulatory coverage at medtechinsight.com. And for all the latest medtech policy and regulation news and analysis, you can follow us on Twitter at medtech underscore insight. The archive of Device Week and the rest of Informa Pharma Intelligence's podcasts are available on the Informa Pharma Intelligence channel on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify Podcasts, and other fine podcast platforms. For now, thanks for listening. <laughs>